get my nom, nom, nom on with the my top chicks and we will eat on, eat on the weekly Second Helpings, the podcast edition of the Weekly Dish. I am Stephanie Merch. I'm here with Molly Herman this today, and we are at Senyai Senlek, which is a Thai restaurant in Northeast. It's been here for quite a while now. I it think. has. It's been a little while since I've been in, though. Yeah, and it's uh, it's you know Joe Hook Surasach, who or I think. I think that's his name. Um, you know, one of the ideas that in taking Thai and and using local ingredients, you know, and really celebrating local produce and local ingredients while still maintaining a really great um, idea about being a Thai restaurant. Well, and he's um, not only been doing that movement for his own restaurant, but he is was instrumental in uh, the Minneapolis Public Schools True Chef Council. Yes, that we were both on um, in trying to do recipes for. Or schools that have a little more flavor, a little more bold, the sort of meet the ethnic yeah. needs that are out there. So, good. Good job. Uh, and, of course, also, we've talked about, we've actually podcasted from next door. Hanson and I did a, did a version um, at the Dipped in Debris Sandwich Shop. Mm-hmm. I think that was the one in which we, we analyzed her anxiety about deli counter meats. Because <laughs> apparently that's all we're going to do, is talk about her anxiety. So, there we go. All right. Here's our food. Yay. Thank you. Good deal. Thanks so much. Take a little away. Give you a little more real estate. Do you like to use the spice tray? Yes, that would be great. Thank you. All right. Okay. Well, Molly, what do you have in your plate? I've got some chicken pad thai. I've never had the pad thai here. I've always gotten, like, the curry special or something mm-hmm. like that. So I'm anxious to dive into this. That is a lot of chicken, too. It is. I know. It's like there's a little tofu, tofu in there, too. Awesome. Thank you. All right. And you are having? Chicken lab, which is just sort of shredded chicken. Mm-hmm. Like a salad. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's warm. I mean, it's not hot, but it's also not cold, which I like. So that's great. All right, so there's also a spice tray, which I love. I don't know what I'm going to do with well, it here. Well, we're slurping. Yeah. Um, so wanted to talk a little bit about the future of food, really, um, because we are we had a lot uh, talk about chain restaurants today on the show. Mm-hmm. If you heard, and then kind of interesting with you know people closing and the evolution of way like things are happening, you know, and even. It's, you know, Burger King taking a step forward and embracing a plant. That's me. Dropping things. Dropping things. A plant-based product is kind of a huge step. Um, ooh, ginger scallion. Right? Um, and so, really talking about the future food, there was a great, there was an article. I don't know if I agree with everything in this article. Um in Eater about how they had uh, the Young Guns, or I think they had the yeah, Symposium or something. Yeah, they had a talk, basically. Um, and so it was really kind of interesting about people who were saying how, what the industry can do to push forward mm-hmm. in order to really change things. 
Um, and, 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 you know, it's, if you want to find it, it's on eater.com, I think, under Young Guns Rising Stars. But um, that's one of the things we're trying to do is, is when we have a podcast, be able to give a link to a thing that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So we're going to work on that. Um, but there's Detroit. Detroit's Food Lab is one of the, was one of the commenters in this, and I think that that is a really interesting concept because of the fact that Detroit has had not only, as we know, economic challenges, but they've had some of their a lot of their renaissance is through food business coming through food. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, for the Detroit Food Lab, for those of you that don't know, is um, they work with entrepreneurs and startups in food businesses. Mm-hmm. So they're seeing a lot of different, I think, um, trends coming up. Mm-hmm. But their whole focus is also helping to create a sustainable uh, business model for these. Right. I mean, you know, and that's something that's been in the news even here in the Twin Cities is, you know, how many restaurants close or fail and what that rate is and how do how do we make it more Can sustainable. I have a chicken? Yeah, please. Have as much as you want. It's one chicken. Um, and you can get down in that. Um, all right. So... One of the things they said there were five takeaways that they thought that restaurants could do right now, that could actively do to help change the future and of the dining scene. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, this is amazing what she said about Detroit. We can work toward a food sovereign city and make it a community-based food system all the way from the seed. Like this is a total reimagining of an urban environment mm-hmm. because of. Cut the total collapse of the city. And I can tell you just from experience, because my family is in Detroit, mm-hmm. and um, my n- cousin is one of the people who is doing agriculture in the city. She's working urban farms. I was going to say, urban farms started there. Yeah. Well, they didn't start there. I'm sorry. What's the guy's name, though, that um, is so big? Isn't it in Detroit? I don't know. I'm going to have to look that up. Sorry. Okay. Um, but there was, I mean, yeah, the, the fact that they had, you know, she had friends who were buying up warehouses for like $20,000. Oh, my gosh. You know, yeah. these huge tracts of land and then deciding that what they were going to do with them. And part of that was urban farming. Anyway, um, here's here's five takeaways I want to see kind of how you think, what if you mm-hmm. think that they're right or wrong as far as moving the, the industry forward. So the first one that they said was operators need to think beyond just getting the best out of their employees. She said, uh, in my company, we truly believe we need to enrich employees' lives, that it's more than just offering benefits and more than just offering a beyond livable wage, which we do. It's giving support to life, to information that allows people to understand the power they bring to the table. We talk about empowering people. Um, I like to remind people, at least when they're in our four walls, they come in with a lot of power and knowledge. So this is about... Thinking beyond getting the thinking, not just like having them show up and get what they need or do the work, but really thinking them as a holistic, as a person. Well, and I think that's a trend that you're starting to see because everybody realized that the the food world, the restaurant world, was burning everybody out, and there's you know higher incidence of alcohol abuse and mental health issues, and it's harder on your body. And so, creating an environment where you know you're nurturing the individual. Um, I think you're going to see more and more of them. We have a few places that have been doing that in the Twin Cities, um, you know, vocally and not vocally. You know, I think that that's, a, that's something that everybody's sort of moving to. Yeah. Well, I also think, you know, yeah, when I think that the, you know, the millennials kind of started the idea that, like, you know, I need you to kind of care about me. 
and we all like to mock it at uh-huh. first, I think, but in the end, it's like, why shouldn't, the, the place where you spend the most hours of your day, you're giving your most mental energy, why wouldn't you want them to care about and, you? Yeah, and why shouldn't they be happy there and feel like they are valued and can contribute? When I think in restaurants, it's actually more closer to that. Mm-hmm. It's less like, you know, because restaurant vet families are so tight, but... It may be where it breaks down, though, is that they don't have restaurants, unless you have multiple restaurants and a lot of employees, they don't have the resources for health care and, you know, some of this... Um, one of the gals in the article, you know, that she has 14 different locations, right? So she, they have this whole peer fund that is just employee emergency relief yeah. for their employees. And so at a certain scale, you can do that in the restaurant world. But as an individual restaurant, I think it's not that they don't nurture and care, but they don't have the resources to provide some of these things that, like, a corporation would. Right, that makes right. Sense. Yeah, yep. But I, and there's also that aspect of, you know, um, The idea that when people need help, it's hard to get some people to ask for help or to take help, to let you know that there's help needed. Um, And that's actually something that, number two, they said you can normalize fair conditions and equitable corporate structures. Mm -hmm. And that means um, it's really uh, the triple bottom line of accounting, which I really like this idea. It means that you're not only paying attention to the P profit, but you're paying attention to the P in people and the P in planet. So we call it the three Ps. Mm-hmm. And even though these guys are a nonprofit, we're going to tell the audience, um, I'm not going to tell this audience that to dismantle the system, you can do it without being profitable. You can. Um, having a profitable business means that you have a profitable business model. And they're saying start with the business model of, of caring about people on the planet in conjunction with that. Well, something else that came up in the article, um, the gal, and I don't remember her name, that owns, you know, the 14 different locations of the restaurant uh, group, she came into the restaurant world never knowing nothing about the restaurant world. And so she created her business model not in the traditional way that a restaurant is created, and that has allowed her to be more profitable. And so I think switching the mindset to... Yeah of how you're even structuring the business part of your your restaurant is going to be key for people to continue to stay open. Yeah. This is a weird thing, though, that says, and start by building the working culture you want from day one. Well, that's not something, that's not something, that doesn't, that's like, to me, that statement was just like, well, great. That's only if you're a startup. Because basically, if you're talking about what restaurants can do right now to help change the industry is... It's harder to turn the ship, is my point. It's like, and this is my point where I'm saying the realities. Like, I don't. My hard part is when people sit at panels and they're from, they're from collectives or they're from, you know, think tanks. And it's like, I want you to be from a restaurant to really think about what that means to say, well, we're going to institute mental health care for people. Well, again. When do so? When is a cook going to take time off for healthcare? For that, and right. and when is a cook going to say, uh, you know, I just can't come in today because I'm not feeling, just feel blue. That's not part right. of the culture. I need a mental health day, right? Yeah, and then really I can't health. afford to take a mental health day yeah. because they are an hourly page thing, mm-hmm. and the restaurant can't afford to pay them and another worker to work that shift. And all of this stuff is like these are the multi layered aspects of it, which is not just easy to say, hey, start your culture from day one and you're going to be great. That's the only thing that bugged me about this. 
And I get it. It's like, it is much easier to continue a healthy culture than it is to correct a toxic one. They said that. But they said they do have to, you know, I do agree that there is a way to make that difference. And I know that, for instance, our locally, maybe one of the best examples was Manny's Steakhouse, which was very much a den of iniquity. (laughs) Very much a place of lawlessness and... You know, I'm not going to say harassment, but it just definitely was the machismo thing. And there was a lot of inside industry stuff that went on there that even now, you know, you kind of look back and you're like, wow, that happened. Um, And I think that they made a big decision to correct that course and say, we're not going to do this anymore when they moved from the Hyatt to the I was going to say, so how long ago was that? Was that 10 years? Probably. Yeah. years? Yeah. And (laughs) that was a huge thing, and they lost people. People were angry. They didn't. They didn't want to change, but they pushed hard. They knew that they were going to be more in the limelight. They're in the center of the city. Mm-hmm. They were part of a hotel, and that there came with that a lot of extra bits of layers of well, scrutiny and standards. Yeah, way. really, truly. And so they were like, they had to change, and I think that they did. Um, and like I said, there were some people who had to leave, and so be it. But it did change, and you didn't lose what Manny's was. I think that's the key to it. Mm-hmm. Is when I look back and I see where it is today, it's still fun. It still brings in the money. It's still great steaks. It's still got that boys. Still a twenty dollars hamburger. Yeah, it's still twenty eight. <laughs> twenty eight. <laughs> it's still like, but it's still a like you can still have a really good like clubby good time there. And mm-hmm. I think that's a specific thing that they thought would all go away, and I don't think it did. Um, okay, one of the more important ones they said is that needs to change is uh, consumer culture around pricing must change. Mm-hmm. And this is a tough one because that's not something that can really happen from restaurants, you know? So we had this discussion at the end of the show today. You know, you were talking about how Old Spaghetti Factory had, you know, three courses for $12, like yeah. shrimp pasta, da 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 da. And I brought up, you know, like the dollar hamburgers at the um, fast food chains. Like, that's still such an outsized value that it doesn't give the consumer any basis for what the food really costs. And I think this article might bring up some article that I read recently. Uh, it's hard for consumers because a lot of things that have cheap and cheaper ingredients, like that are soy-based, corn-based, those farmers get subsidies. Yeah. Right? They get government assistance to grow their crop so that they can also sell it at a lesser amount. Yep. Therefore, McDonald's can have a dollar hamburger or whatever that looks like. And so it gives this, it's a different value with that subsidy. And I think that's hard for people to wrap their heads around. Yeah. Well, I also think the quality of food that's desired is one thing. And then, sure. you know, we always talked about. You know, in the Twin Cities, my favorite is the, is the bowl of soup situation, where you tell someone, hey, you know, do you think that we should pay servers a living wage? Like, do you think that we should pay them 15 bucks an hour? And people are like, absolutely, just do it. You know, and they're like, and then they say, just raise prices. And then you say, okay, well, we're going to raise prices. And then they see a $15 bowl of soup, and they're like, what the hell is that? I'm not, I'm not having that. I'm not paying 15 bucks for a grilled cheese sandwich. It's tough. It's rough, and you have to think about it. But if they're, if everything in there is being, if they're paying, you know, they're making health insurance for their employees, and they are paying for there to be a livable wage, and 
they're paying for quality ingredients and all of that, then it's going to cost more. Yeah. And that's the hard part is it's, 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 it's a, that's an even slower ship mm-hmm. to turn. Well, and I think your article in uh, Twin Cities Business magazine this last month, when you talked about, you know, how restaurants sometimes offset their more expensive items with an item that's cheaper, but they raise the price because the threshold is there for the consumer. Like, that's how they get around yeah. and are able to still, you know, stay alive mm-hmm. by having this balance. Yeah. And so you have, you know, a salad that may cost you, you know, it may cost only $5 to put on the plate, but you're going to charge more for it. And that's a thing that, because you're then supporting other food that... That you know the consumer threshold isn't there to pay it quite as much for, right? right? Yeah, it's interesting, mm-hmm. but it's also—I mean, I don't know how they do it, how they all charge, and they have to look at things. And the hard part is you don't really know until someone complains, or you know, the way that people are these days, because there are so many restaurants out there mm-hmm. that they go. They kind of just say, eh, well, it was too expensive. I'm not going to come back. And when they don't come back, and you don't even know. You just don't know. And all of a sudden, everything's sales are down. Or maybe you'll see it on Yelp, but you won't. You know, they can't communicate it as well. I don't know. We just got a really hot one. Yeah. <laughs> but Slurping and sniffing yeah. when you uh, eat typing. But, I mean, the thing is, when you talk about, when people get mad about, it's funny to me. They get the whole Pizza Hut thing. When they were, you know, up in arms about closing 400 Pizza Hut's, you know, dine-in places. And, and yet, at the same time, you know, like, those are, they're not really willing, like, the way that the world is working and moving towards is that the full-service place, this is exactly what's going to happen with the minimum wage goes up. And costs more to employ people because they all need to because of the economies and everything else. Thank you. Did you know what you wanted to order that uh, person to go? I'll come back to you. We're recording a little thing here. Sorry. That's okay. It's all right. But thank you. Um, But I think that there's... uh, I think that there is that uproar but then it doesn't you can't like people get angry about that but then they're also they don't even think that what the cost of what it would be to run that place and employ those people and everything else like they don't they don't equate those two emotions at all they just think oh i've lost my favorite spot to bring my soccer team or whatever or the memory of the nostalgia of it but then if you were to say okay you can have that place but it will now cost 37 dollars per pizza right they would not pick that so do you think, though, that what we're going to see is, I mean, there's, you know, more restaurants are going to close, so we're going to have less restaurants that will maybe have more support because there's not as many choices? Well, I think what's going to happen is we're going to lose middle dining for a while. We're going to go to counter service mostly. And smaller shops. And fine dining will always be fine dining, but done differently, maybe. Mm-hmm. That, that ticketed situation. I think that's a part of it, but I don't think that's... 
I think there's still going to be fine dining that is like many steakhouse. You know what I mean? And there's going to be, I think your steakhouse settings will never go to tasting menus because that's not, there's a majority of Americans who don't want that. So, a majority. <laughs> so what about restaurants like, I mean, Corner Table just closed, right? So what about a fine dining restaurant like that? Is that, is that losing its place? I think that... Not to put you on the spot. I'm no, I, I'm no, I'm trying to figure out how to categorize this mm-hmm. best to make it understandable in my mind. Um, I think that there's places like, like the Manny's structure is going to be fine, and, and even like Spoon and Stable, they will be able to raise their prices even though they're not a steakhouse, and they won't have to go to tasting menu. That's that whole idea. And then there are places that will just be tasting menu, and those will feed the foodie elite, and they'll be small and ticketed and, and intentionally. Travail, Demi. Yep. And those will be the cutting-edge joints, but they won't be feeding. They won't be the ones feeding, like, the business expense accounts kind of a thing. But they will be the foodie elites and the, you know, the travelers and things. Well, and so the ones that are still, that are attached to hotels or near the downtowns where business travelers are, are those going to, you think those are going to automatically? No, I think if you're attached to a hotel, it's a whole different structure of business. But I do believe that places like, what I'm talking about is, is honestly places like this. This is small enough. Sunrise and Life is small enough where this is like you can handle this and they can go down to this is you're not coming for like high service. But right. and they very much have about the quality of their food is important to them. But so this could be, but there's places that won't be able to find they won't be able to pay more than one or two servers, you know. I don't know. I think what's I think what's gonna happen is it's gonna be the implosion of like the Applebee's and all those guys. They're not gonna be able to pay. so many of them are already closed. Yeah, but I mean like Famous Dave's has closed a whole bunch. There's a lot of those, like Chili's closes a bunch. Ruby uh, Tuesdays. Yeah. It, it's no longer at Southdale's like this right. black hole. So those are all gonna close because I think that they can't afford they can't afford to pay those labor wages and I also think they can't find people and who are willing to not now work for that and then they're also um, they can't jack the prices up on their food because to pay for it because people won't have it because they have trained people to know that three courses is $12 so I think there's a double whammy happening here and there's a volume that has to happen in restaurants like that whereas some places that's small Mm -hmm. right and how many tables do you think are in here I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but it's it's a small restaurant that its footprint is not going to be. It's, they're going to be able to maintain it. Hopefully. Well, I mean, right, but that also means that if nobody comes in, like if it's a slow day, what does that mean? Like three mm-hmm. tables can't make your rent? It'll all depend on rents, and that is a big thing that people mm-hmm. haven't. It's funny, we talk about wages all the time, but really it's rent and yeah. it's lease, and it's about. If you want to subsidize people, it's like you got to subsidize the restaurant owners for their rent, and you have to put a cap on things for yeah, landlords. Yeah, there's lots of places that close because their rent goes up and they can't afford it. Yeah, a lot of them. Most of them yeah. end up ending their lease and then having, not most of them, but a lot of them do. Yeah, I don't know. And so, um, and a lot of the, and so that kind of brings around to this last one, the consumer should keep going to restaurants and ask more questions. Mm-hmm. So... It may take a little bit of extra work, but it's like that kind of a thing where you you go to a, a restaurant and you figure out what it is that you want out of a restaurant, and then you look for it, and then you kind of then you talk to them about it. Well, and I would say don't assume that other people are supporting it like you would want it to be supported. Like if you want, if you love a restaurant, you need to 
make sure you're going regularly enough that you're sustaining them on, you know, yeah. through your patronage. Right. And hopefully enough people are doing the same. Well, and this is where this whole, like, shiny new object is kind of the American way of things. Uh, yes. And how we jump from thing to thing to thing, uh-huh. and it's kind of fashionable to keep discovering new things and exploring them and shouting them out, but really the truth is to kind of come back to the places that you love and celebrate mm-hmm. them as much. Yeah. But I think that will happen, too, because I think things will start to get smaller, and I think we're going to see less hours. Mm-hmm. We're going to see people that are not able to be open, you know, they're not able to guess about a Monday or maybe roll the dice on a Tuesday. Right. We know that Tuesdays and Mondays are slower, but sometimes there's a great lunch on a Monday, so you staff up for it, and sometimes there's not. And so th- that gamble will not be able to be brooked. I think you're right that we're going to see a lot more Sunday-Monday closures because what that's going to allow is that nurturing of your your people, of giving everybody two days off in a row, which is sort of unheard of in the restaurant world. I think they'll be Monday, Tuesdays. Well, Monday's Tuesday, whichever. But, you know, two days off in a row like that because if it's the slow days and they can't really figure out how to survive on those days, then, yeah, shut Mm -hmm. her down and and let your employees regroup and have that time away so that you maintain them for longer. Yeah. I don't know. It is shifting and it is changing, and it's like you can see it because you can see it in the big companies. It's happening on a huge, on a bigger level than you know. That's Mm -hmm. the thing. It's like the big picture of things are, um, are these big chains moving in order to try to, you know, figure out how to adapt to the culture. And so then the small ones have to do it or have already done it. But I'm guarantee you in, like, 10 years, if we're still doing this podcast, God help us. Um, <laughs> but it'll be it'll be an interesting thing to have watched. Yeah. So. All right, there you are, everybody. Uh, hope you guys have a great Saturday or Wednesday or whenever this posts. Ciao. Ciao.